John chapter 16, page 1243 in that pew Bible in front of you, maybe 1244, we'll work through this second half of John 16, and we're, we're in the upper room discourse. We're, as I was saying last week when we were talking about the beginning of John 16, that we're just in the midst of this extraordinary conversation. And every week when we sort of drop in, we, we, we have to stop a minute and sort of recalibrate and think about what's happening and where we are. And, you know, you can't just jump in and start reading and, and, and going on and not really understand the significance of what is taking place. This is a very intense night for the Lord. It's His last night on earth and with His followers. And, and so He's bringing clarity to all of the things that He has lived out before them over the previous three and a half years. And the crazy thing is, is that as He was living these things out before them, they didn't understand what He was doing. And they would ask questions and he would, he would try to explain it and they still wouldn't understand it. And now, he's sort of laying it all out again, afresh and anew. And it's all beginning to sort of stack together. All the pieces of the puzzle are starting to build together. And all of that's happening in the midst of this emotional roller coaster that the disciples are on. I mean, they started this evening out by coming into the upper room to celebrate the Passover. Jesus comes in, takes His robe off, gets down on His knees and begins to wash their feet. That was an extraordinary moment that had them all reeling and trying to figure out what's happening here. And then, Jesus informs them that one of them will betray Him. And then he identifies his betrayer as Judas Iscariot and dismisses Judas from the room. So you can see there's just so many things that are happening. And then Jesus goes into this conversation as they uh, walk across the countryside about the vine and the branches. And here's what I want you to think about. It's sort of as if maybe a a father or a mother, a parent is able to, they know their life is coming to an end and so they're able to, to say all the things to their family that need to be said. But it's even more than that. It would be as if this parent had full knowledge of everything that was to come. So try to imagine what a loving father would say to his children in his final conversation if he knew every single thing that were coming. And what he would say is what we have here because that's what's going on. And so, Jesus goes into this conversation about the vine and the branches. I'm the vine, you're the, the branches. Abide in me and you will bear fruit, he says. He says the Father is the vine dresser and the, 
the vine dresser prunes the, the branches. The ones that don't produce fruit, He cuts off and discards. But those that do produce fruit, He prunes them that they might produce more fruit. And we talked about and thought about the fact that there's not a single command in Scripture that we're to bear fruit. That we're not commanded to bear fruit because we can't bear fruit. We can only bear fruit by abiding. So the command is to abide or to depend or to remain in Christ. And in doing so, we then bear fruit. We talked about how confusing sometimes fruit can be. People get confused about what fruit is and and what does that look like in the life of a believer. So we talked about that fruit is the life of Jesus being lived through me or through you or through us. And that His life through us bears fruit. So all of this is going on in the midst of Jesus knowing what is awaiting Him. And so on one hand, there's this potential liberation that comes with realizing for not only for the disciples, but for us. Realizing that the Christian life is not ours to live. That God didn't call us and save us to live this life, to obey these commands or not obey these commands or to accomplish this list of things. But He called us and He saved us to abide in Him and to live in relationship with Him. And that what would happen is the way the Christian life is lived is His life through us. And so we can do that. That we can do. We, we so oftentimes want to get tangled up in some legalistic endeavor. But no, Jesus is making it very clear. Don't do that. Don't make that mistake. Don't make the mistake of the Pharisees. Remain in relationship. Depend on Me. Abide in My words. And so really, I have thought over these last weeks about so much about what does, what does it look like when Jesus' life is lived through us? Because I see that, thankfully, so oftentimes in your lives. And it's such a wonderful blessing. And I thought, now, how, do, how can I quantify that? And I think really the way, the way it comes out is it's, it's intimacy that produces obedience. It's this wonderful intimacy, and, the, and it produces obedience, but it's not drudgery and it's not duty. It's just glad, joyful Service unto God, obedience unto God, and it's a delight. His commands are not burdensome. It's a delight to be a child of God and to be able to walk in His ways and to know His thoughts and His intentions. And every opportunity we get to apply Scripture to our life and to obey Him is an opportunity for us to experience great joy. And so all of this is happening. And now Jesus is going to start to yet again elaborate. He's going to 
He's going to speak to the disciples. And in turn, He's going to speak to you and me. And in doing that, we're going to, we're going to see some things. Hopefully, He's going to give us some understanding, illuminate our minds to be able to understand Yes, that's what Jesus was doing. That's what that means. That's what, that's what we talked about so many weeks ago as we've been going through John. That's now I see the fulfillment of what God was saying or doing. So let's begin in John 16, verse 16. What would it look like if we were led from the inside, what would this Spirit-led life... Remember last week, it was, it's going to be a, a benefit to you, profitable for you if I leave. Because if I leave, the Spirit comes. And so it's all the things that are coming. I've made provision for everything that's ahead for you. I know all the things that are coming and I've made provision for every one of them. And so here they are. John 16, 16. Jesus says, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Because I go to the Father. Then some of the disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus <laughs> excuse me, knew what they, that they desired to ask him. And so he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that the human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Now, I think there's two questions, there's two things that are going on. There's a question that we're all asking. And that question is, how can we handle our sorrow? That's the question the disciples are asking. That's the question that we're always asking. Every person is always asking that question because that is a reality. We all know if we're alive and we're in this world and we're over age 10, that there's going to be trials and trouble and struggles. And so how do we handle our sorrow? How do we deal with loss? How do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with things that are unknown or unexplainable? And so Jesus keeps telling the disciples that there's going to be sorrow, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be trials. And they're wondering, how do we deal with that? What's going on? But then on the other side, you have Jesus who knows everything that's coming, who's instructing and preparing His followers for everything that lies ahead. And so the question Jesus is answering is what is untakeable joy? What is untakeable joy? 
Yes, all the English teachers in the room, I made the word up. So you can just sit there and imagine the red squiggly line under it. But don't you think we just need to add it to the dictionary? I mean, I tried all the words that we have. I didn't like them. See, verse 22 says, Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. It's untakeable. And so they're asking, how do we handle our sorrow? And Jesus is saying, well, let me tell you about untakeable joy. In verse 22, Jesus says, Therefore, you now have sorrow. Therefore, you now have sorrow. Now, when will their sorrow come? Their sorrow is going to come because He's going to leave. And when's He going to leave? He's going to leave when He hangs on a cross. And when He hangs on a cross, they're going to be devastated because everything that their uh, life has been founded upon is going to seemingly crash down before them. They're not going to understand what's going on. They're not going to, uh, they're not going to realize the significance of what's happening. And so in that moment, they're going to be devastated and their heart's going to be filled with sorrow. And they're going to think that this is absolutely the worst possible thing that could ever happen. But he says, but then you will see me again, and when you see me again, you will rejoice. And when will they see him again? They will see him again after he rises from the dead. So after the resurrection, they will see him, and they will, and all, and, and everything will begin to start, you know, fitting together all the pieces. They'll be backtracking. You know, well, now wait a minute, hold on. You're alive. It's you, Lord. And all of the amazing Easter passages will just pour across our heart as we think about the rejoicing. And Jesus says, the joy that you will have after my resurrection will be untakeable. It will be untakeable. Now, when he says, I think the, the, the key to understanding all of this is first of all, to know who he's talking to. See, when he says, therefore you... And then he says, but you will, but I will see you no more, but your joy. You see, he doesn't say some of you. He's talking to all of his disciples. When he, so really, for me and you, he says, y'all. He's saying, listen, y'all are going to have sorrow, but I will see y'all again. And when I do, your hearts are going to rejoice. And when your hearts rejoice, you're going to receive a joy that nobody can take from you. Now, listen, he doesn't say, he, he, he says you, you will. You will have joy. He, he doesn't say you may have joy, you might have joy, you could have joy. He says you, you will have joy. And no one can take it from you. And that's an astonishing statement. Because it's in the context of, you're going to be sorrowful, your heart's going to be broken. Now, is he only talking to the disciples? Or is he speaking to the disciples in the context of every believer 
who follows Jesus from there forward, these words are going to ring true in their lives as well. You see, it's true for them and it's true for us. And He's speaking to them as He's speaking to us. And just like as we move into the next chapter, the high priestly prayer, we're going to find out that He's praying for them and He's praying for us. And so we're in the context of this whole conversation. All of this applies to me and to you. And it makes it so astonishing that He is telling them over and over all of the hardships that lie ahead and all about the persecution that they're going to face and the reality. Listen, look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, most assuredly, that's verily, verily. That's the strongest words you can use. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he, is, he cannot be more definitive. He's trying to grab their attention and shock them into listening. He says, you need to listen. That you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. Listen, he's not, he's not, he's not overemphasizing something. He's not building this up. He's being realistic. He's letting them know that what lies ahead for them is going to be very difficult. He's letting them know that it's going to be real and that their emotions are going to be crushed and that they're going to experience this. And even though He's telling them what is going to happen, when it happens, it's still going to affect them that way. And in the midst of it affecting them that way, maybe they'll think about and remember the things that He's already said. Now, we need to think about this joy. What is this untakeable joy? And Jesus chooses this very specific illustration to instruct us about untakeable joy. And I have had such a wonderful time thinking about this passage and thinking about how creative the Lord is and all the different ways that He uses to explain things so that we can understand it. And yet, of all of the possibilities before Him, He's so good to us to choose this particular way to get us to understand what He's talking about. Because let's face it, it's wonderful this morning if we all say, well, I believe in God and therefore I believe the Bible's true and therefore I believe that there's such a thing as untakeable joy. But what good is that if you don't know what it is? What good is that if you can't harness it, hold it, and live it and experience it? And so what he wants us to know is untakeable joy is not circumstantial. It is not circumstantial. Of all the things that he could say, he uses an illustration to show us maybe what he's doing is he's Teaching and also illustrating to us the reality that it's not just me and it's not just you, but it's all people of all times. We've been so, we're so prone to get tangled up in our circumstances. Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, A woman, when she is in labor, 
has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she gives birth to a child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Hmm. Boy, I have thought about this and thought about this. I thought about how, uh, you know, it was a little before, you know, because I'm, I'm in the hospital all the time uh, with new parents and celebrating the birth of children. And I'm always telling people, I said, listen, we're, you know, we're a church, but it seems like we're like a fertility clinic at the same time, you know, around here. So if you, you come here, you know, you're liable to get pregnant. But you know, the thing is, is that when, when, I, when I go into the hospital and I, I'm there when somebody's having a baby, I realize how much that's changed just since Lisa and I were in that situation. And, you know, before that, the generation before that, when, when a woman went into labor, she went back in the room and I'm, I don't know if, if the... Uh, if if the mom or anybody was allowed back there, but the husband never went back there. That that was negative. That didn't happen. And then you know we got to a new liberated place where we thought, well, you know, it was it's a good idea. Let's bring the husband back there. Who's the brainiac that came up with that idea? That's what I'm trying to figure out. You know, you're there. And man, everybody's huffing and puffing and carrying on. And, you know, of course, you're the target of everything, you know. And what are you supposed to do or say? You're just kind of, you're just there like a punching bag. You just hang there for somebody to just beat on you. But then, a baby comes. Now believe me, five seconds before that, you think you're going to die. I'm not talking about her, I'm talking about me. Dying wouldn't be bad. About five seconds before the baby comes, death wouldn't be that bad. Notice what this passage doesn't say. It, it doesn't say that when the child is born, that the mother's pain and anguish goes away. It's, it's not that the minute a child is born, the mother's body magically stops hurting. That the trauma and the torture that she's just been going through just magically leaves the room. That's not what happens. What happens is, is that all the one minute, it, is the, it seems like the end of the world and then the very next minute, there's a baby. And we're all crying and we're, we're hugging and we're, we're, we're holding this baby. And, and the mom is still wrecked with pain, but you wouldn't know it. You, you couldn't tell it. You. And so what is happening? I mean, where else do you see a person 
in excruciating pain with this giant smile on their face and this joy beaming out of their heart. You see, what what Jesus wants us to know this morning is that untakeable joy is unique in the world. It's, It's not like the world's happiness. It's very, very different that joy in the Lord coexists with sorrow. And that's what makes it very different. You know, the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Have you ever read that and thought to yourself, no, wait a minute, what now? What? What? Then that's a little indication of what Jesus is talking about here in verse 21. You see, Christian joy doesn't banish all sorrow. That's not how this works. It supersedes the sorrow. And a lot of times people don't understand this. And so immature believers or people who uh, you know, just don't, don't understand the Gospel or don't understand or haven't been rightly taught or have listened to somebody who's wrongly uh, taught them and misled them, they, they're under the assumption that this Jesus exists to take away all my problems. But the Bible is so clear that that's not the case. And, and remember, as Jesus is, is, is saying goodbye to His disciples, He has the authority and power to manipulate anything at His fingertips in their future, but He doesn't do that. He does something better. It's this joy that He is talking about. It, this transcendent joy. This joy that transcends your situations and your your circumstances. Now remember, we're coming off the heels of the conversation about the Holy Spirit. And he's saying when the Holy Spirit comes, He's not going to take away all your problems. That's not what He's going to do. He's going to be your helper and He's going to be your counselor and He's going to be your guide and He's going to manifest Me in you and through you and He's going to always be with you and He's never going to leave you and He's never going to forsake you. But He's not going to take away all your problems. That's not what He's there for. And so you could say it this way, Jesus, He doesn't promise a world absent of sorrow. He promises joy beyond sorrow. That's what He's talking about here. You see, the the world's joy, or happiness as we call it, that's based upon happenings around us, is based on circumstances. That's what it's based on. And so when things are good, people are happy. And when things go bad, People are sad. And the question that that always comes to my mind in this conversation is that we should always ask ourselves, well, what is it that when you have a bad day, because we all have bad days, when you have a bad day, what is it that most often causes you to have a bad day? What is your 
What, what are you linked to? What is it that when you know that it's just been a bad day? Well, what causes that? Why? We live in a world filled with people who who have a bad day when their stocks don't perform the way they ought to perform. They have a bad day when their hair doesn't perform the way it ought to perform. I mean, you think about all the frivolous things that send people off a tangent. And, and you think about all the meaningless conversations about, whoa, what a, it's just been such a bad day. It's been such a bad week. And here's what's going on. And this is happening and that's happening. And, and so I'm, I'm negative and I'm grumpy and I'm down and I'm frowning because... So what about you? What causes you to have a bad day? Do you have a bad day because you get stuck in traffic on your way to work? Do you have a bad day because your children don't behave perfectly? Do you have a bad day because... Why? You see, in the world's economy, these opposing forces don't coexist. It's either good or it's bad. It's either a good day or it's a bad day. It can't be a good and bad day at the same time because your circumstances drive whether or not it's good or bad. But if your joy, if your joy is found in God's love for you in Christ, if what, if what brings you joy is the fact that God genuinely loves you. You see? Things are going to suddenly take on a new perspective, aren't they? They're going to look differently. And what happens is, is that when real sorrow comes, because it does, Jesus isn't talking about pretend sorrow. He's talking about real sorrow. He's talking about the real sorrow that we face in this room. He's talking about the real sorrow that I face every single week. The reality of, of walking with people who say goodbye to their loved ones and whose lives are turned upside down by this instantaneous, unexpected event by unforeseen challenges. I was having a conversation this week with a, a man. He's, he's 53 years old. He, he said, Pastor, I've been married for 33 years. And he said, I, we, had a, we had a good, we have a good marriage. We had a good family. We raised our children and we you know, we went to church and we, we did the right things. And I said, what happened? He said, I don't know. He said, every Friday, for as long as I can remember, he said, when I'm 
coming home from work, I would call the house and we would, Friday was the night that my wife and I would go out and, and eat dinner. And we'd always go eat dinner with our, our friends. I mean, all, all our kids are grown and so it's just us. And so Friday nights we'd always go out and, and eat dinner together. And this one particular Friday night, I'm, I'm driving home and I called my wife and said, you know, uh, that, hey, I talked to so-and-so and, you know, we're going to meet them at this time at this place. And she said, no, I'm, I'm not going to dinner tonight. I'm going to go to my mother's house. And he said, oh, okay, well, then I'll pick up some food on the way home and we can eat and then, you know, you can go see your mom. And she said, no, you don't understand. I'm going to my mother's house and I'm not coming back. And when he got home, he, he I mean, he said, he, he just, he kept saying, yeah, you know, quit kidding around. Stop, you know, joking. That's not, and she said, no, I'm not. And they kept going back and forth. And he said, when he got home, everything of hers was gone. There was just some dollies sitting there that she had used to load up all of her stuff. And there was a note on the counter and it said, do not under any circumstances come to my mother's house. You're not welcome there. I do not want to see you. I do not want to speak to you. And it's just tears running down his face. I mean, literally, he's in shock. He's telling me this. He's, he says, I don't, I don't know what happened. I don't know what went wrong. I don't know. I said, you don't have any idea. He said, I have no earthly idea. Sorrow. Brokenness. What do you do? What, how, did, how could this happen? Where's God in this moment? And these moments come to steal, kill, and to destroy. To, to steal and kill and destroy your joy. To cause you to lose faith. To cause you to lose hope. So I asked him, I said, so what are you going to do? He said, I realize that I haven't been walking as closely with Jesus as I need to. He wasn't saying that the reason she left was because of that. He was saying that her leaving caused him to say, well, what am I going to do? And it drove him into his relationship with God. And it drove him to places that he hasn't been in a very long time. And it drove him to the realization that he hasn't been abiding in Christ the way he ought because he thought everything was fine. What I'm telling you here is that 
this untakeable joy. What happens when the rug is jerked out from under the, the believer? What happens when somebody who has the joy of the Lord in their heart is when they're crushed, it drives you deeper into God. It drives you deeper into this joy. It doesn't... It doesn't it's not swallowed up by the sorrow. Now that's not to say that we don't hurt and we don't grieve and we don't weep. And He said, you're going to weep and you're going to sorrow. But it will eventually be overtaken by joy. Because what is unchanging is the fact that God loves us. You see, the love of God, the abiding, unchanging love of God, it, it almost declaws the sorrow that comes into our lives. It's real and it's there, but it doesn't have the potential to harm us and hurt us and devastate us the way it once would have. So he says in verse 20, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. Yes. You're going to lose me and you're going to be bewildered. And you're not going to understand that. And on top of that, when that happens, he says the world is going to rejoice. You see, because the world is going to see that as a triumph. The world is going to see that as, as a success. You're going to be weeping and lamenting and the world is going to see it as victory. The world is going to think that they won. The world is going to think that the purposes of Christ have been shut down. That righteousness has been defeated. That this whole Jesus movement has been put to death once and for all. And now we can just go back to the way things were. We can happily live in our religion that we've created where we're the center of it and where we're in control. And that's what the world they thought it was a good thing. And if you think about it, there's nothing in our lives that's more agonizing than, than having a, a devastated heart, than being completely sorrowful about something and yet seeing other people rejoicing in the very thing that's causing our sorrow. And so what would God do in that situation? Because again... They're still trying to grab onto these pieces. They're still trying to say, God, I mean, and I just wish in this moment you could see what I could see right now. I wish you could see the faces that are looking back at me that are grabbing for this in this moment the same way the disciples are. That so many of us in this room are going, Wait a minute, I'm trying to hold this. I'm trying to harness this. I'm trying to... Because I hurt. I hurt. And I've wondered why, God, why don't you take my hurt away? And Jesus is saying this isn't about taking hurt away. It's about giving you something better. And the hurt inside of us will drive us deeper into that joy. And maybe now we're starting to, to wrap our arms around some of the pruning ministry of the Father. Because we ask questions like God. People ask me all the time. 
well, well, can God take this away? And I say, of course he can. And then they're like, well, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? Well, God can take all of this away from the disciples, but he doesn't. And so in the midst of their pain, where is he going to shift their attention? And notice the passage takes a, an abrupt shift right in verse 23. And he says to them, in that day, you will ask, ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So he takes their attention of all places. He's got them sort of teetering on this, uh, in this moment of untakeable joy. And they're trying to sort all this out. And then he, he opens their mind up to access. He opens their mind up to, to prayer. He opens their mind up. Listen, you can, you can come to me. I mean, think about what he's saying here. I mean, technically speaking. Have they, have they prayed anything in Jesus' name to the Father? Well, of course they haven't. Why would they? Imagine what their experience has been up until this moment. Whenever they needed something, what did they do? Did they say, Oh, Father in Heaven, please provide this. No, they've got God standing right next to them. So when they needed something, they just asked Jesus. And what would Jesus do? He would ask the Father. But now, Jesus won't be standing next to them. So he's clarifying for them how this relationship is going to shift. I mean, why would you pray to the God in heaven when you have God standing next to you on earth? I mean, that just makes sense. But he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, here's a good opportunity for a lot of people to get themselves in all sorts of trouble. Well, I mean, the Bible says, whatever I ask for, I can receive. So if I ask for something and don't receive it, well, don't leave the context of the conversation. Remember that Jesus started talking about this principle back in chapter 14. Same conversation, John 14, 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, what? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. That you ask, uh, when you ask, what he's teaching here is this principle that when you ask in the name of another, it's for the glory of another. That you don't ask in the name of, of, of Jesus for something that's for your glory, you're asking, it's just the principles laid out in, in John 14, 13, and now he's just getting us to see it. It's for the purpose of, and the honor of, and the sake of, the glory and the honor of the one in whose name you ask it. So in verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, 
exactly. In order to understand this, I think the best thing to do is to look at clarification from the Apostle Paul. Because Paul gives us perfect clarification of this whole conversation about prayer in Romans chapter 8. These verses will come up on the screen. And surely they're familiar to most of you in the room. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, the Bible says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now remember, Jesus just told the disciples that He's going to give them the Holy Spirit. And now they're having a conversation about prayer. And so we, we can look at what Paul's saying and we can first of all say to ourselves, Thank goodness, as I thought it was only me. But thank goodness the Apostle Paul, the greatest theological mind that ever lived, sometimes didn't know what to pray. Because it's not very beneficial for me to stand up and tell you that God will give you whatever you pray in His name so long as you pray according to His will. Well, that's great, except for when you don't know what His will is in a specific situation. Right? Right? And how many times in life are you praying about something and you don't know the will of God? But who does? The Spirit of God within you knows the will of God. Yes. And so Paul says sometimes we don't even know what to pray for. And you see, you have to remember something. That, that when, you're, when you're, you're, your child is having a, a birthday party, and all their friends are coming over and you've got all the, the, the tables and chairs that you're going to set up out in the yard and you've got all the, the hamburgers and hot dogs you're going to barbecue and everything's set. And the night before you're laying in bed and you're saying, God, please, Lord, please let it be sunny tomorrow. Please let the sun shine because you know, you know we need to have this birthday party. And at the same time, there's farmers saying, God, please send the rain. We need rain. Lord, look at my crops. Send rain. You see, you don't know what you're praying for. You don't know. And Paul's saying, there's times I don't know. Verse 27, but he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Whew. Thank goodness when we as God's children bow our heads in prayer and begin to pray, God always answers the requests of the Spirit. You know why? Because the Bible says the Spirit always knows the will of the Father. And so He makes intercession on our behalf. And Jesus is just using... Paul is just simply expressing what Jesus is laying out in this upper room conversation. And that's how you get to verse 28. You see, it's in that context the Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You see? And so Jesus is simply saying, listen, I know that there's been some confusion about how this is going to work, but I'm giving you a helper, and you're going to have an advocate, you're going to have an intercessor, and you're going to be able to come. And so continuing in, in chapter 16 of John, verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will pray to the Father for you. For the Father Himself loves you. You see again, He's saying, in the midst of 
your suffering and trials and, and tribulation? What, it, what do you need to be reminded of? Every chance Jesus can, He's sticking in there reminding them the Father loves you. And He says to them, the Father loves you. For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. I came forth from the Father and I came into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And so His disciples said to Him, See, you are now speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. But this we believe that you came from God. And so in this moment of clarity, Jesus says in verse 31, do you now believe? Again, remember, he knows everything that lies ahead. He knows everything that lies ahead for you. Everything. He knows everything that you've experienced. He knows what you're experiencing right now. And he knows everything in your future. And he says, do you believe now? In verse 32, he says, indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come. That you will be scattered each to his own and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the father is with me. You see. In their in their declaration of understanding and clarity and belief, Jesus then responds to them with. Are you sure? Do you believe? Because. The hour has now come. Listen. As he's saying this, the mob has already lit their torches. They're already marching towards Gethsemane. In other words, the, the, the table is set. The, the plot is already in motion. He knows what's coming. And when, they're, when, when, they, when they have this aha moment of, oh, if we get this, we get this, he yet again reminds them, listen, you're about to be scattered. You're going to leave me alone, but I'm not going to be alone. Because the Father's going to be with me. And then he says, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, John 16, 33. He says, all these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. That you'd have peace. In the midst of everything that's about to happen. Because in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So as we think about celebrating the Lord's Supper together in a few moments. The question is, how did Jesus overcome the world? How did he overcome the world? What is the mechanism that Jesus used to gain victory over the world? How did he do that? He overcame the world simply by sacrifice. It was sacrifice that Jesus used to overcome the world. 
It was sacrifice that would lead to the blessing of all the things that He said were coming. It was sacrifice that created the environment where all of the ways in which He's provided for the people that He loves to face all the difficulty that lies before them, He did all of that. He accomplished all of that through sacrifice. So what happened? What happened to these 11 men? who sit listening. What happened to the original hearers of these words as they left Christ's lips? What happened to them? One by one by one, Stephen, the first to go, stoned to death. James, beheaded. The historians tell us that at his beheading, just prior to him having his head lopped off, his executor was converted to faith in Jesus and was subsequently executed immediately after James. But that didn't sew James's head back on. Peter crucified upside down. Andrew hanged. Thomas burned alive. Philip crucified. Matthew beheaded. Nathaniel crucified. James II clubbed to death. Simon crucified. Judas Thaddeus beaten with sticks until he finally succumbed to death. John, the author of this book, the only one who wasn't physically martyred, exiled to Patmos, forced to live an abandoned life on an island separated. The fathers of the faith used to say that the apostles were Martyred in death, John was martyred in life. Every one of these men suffered tremendous tribulation, just like Jesus had predicted. Did they fail to pray? Did they miss something? Is there something wrong with us? Is that why we suffer? Is that why things don't just go our way? Is that why we don't just, every time there's some challenge and some struggle, we just begin to say, God, please take this away. Move this barrier out of my path. Lord, take away my pain or take away my suffering or answer my questions or... And the Lord's saying, I... I love you. I'm with you. Every time you pray, I hear you. You don't frustrate me by praying the wrong things because the Spirit always brings me the right things. It just drives you into untakeable joy. 
It drives you into those moments where you say, I can't explain it, but in the midst of all this suffering, I have joy. Why? Untakeable joy depends on Jesus. No matter what happens in the world. It depends on Jesus. He never wavers. His promises are always true. He never changes. His word is always there. And so when John pens his letter and he gets to the fifth chapter of 1 John, you know what he says? Now remember, he remembered Jesus saying, for in this life you'll face tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, he says, for everyone who has been born of God, he overcomes the world. He overcomes the world. Listen, brothers and sisters, God is with us in the valley. He's with us in the fire and the flood. He is with us. He's with you and He loves you. And you just abide in Him and you hold, cling tightly to Him and know that the depths of His love are never fully plumbed in this life. And just keep clinging and loving and allowing Him to fill your heart with unexpressible, unexplainable joy. And know that His mechanism for overcoming the world then was sacrifice. And now is sacrifice. What witness would we be if life always went our way and yet we were faithful? No. It's in our suffering. You see, we're a people. You're a people that embrace the reality that life in Christ is the most amazing gift you can ever be granted. But at times, it will perplex the world around us. Because it doesn't take away the problems that we face. It doesn't mean that your tomorrow somehow becomes rosy. It doesn't mean that. So don't grow weary. Know that. This God who loves you, how do I know He loves me? Because look at what He's done on our behalf. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're new to church or you don't understand the significance of this moment we're about to participate in. I want you to understand that this is an ordinance. It's not a ritual. We don't do this in a ritualistic way. We do this as a celebration of what the Lord has given to us. The, the bread that we're about to partake of, it represents the broken body of Christ. And that's why it will be broken into little pieces. And the cup that we're about to take, it, it represents His shed blood on our behalf. And it's important for us all to know that as we approach this time, that the Scripture warns. It warns God's people to not partake of this time in an unworthy manner. And so just like Jesus is, is sharing these, 
these so essential, important words with his loved ones. God's saying to me and you this morning, listen, it's so important that you stay connected to the sacrifice of Jesus that overcame the world. And you can't approach it in an unworthy way. The Bible says, whoever therefore eats or drinks of this cup and of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so to be clear, we need to understand that eating or drinking in an unworthy way would be, first of all, to lack appreciation for what the sacrifice represents. The depth and the reality of the suffering that Jesus endured. And so remember, it was for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Just because He had untakeable joy, don't think this wasn't excruciatingly painful and don't think it was easy because it wasn't. And so He did that in obedience to the Father. And in doing so, He saved me and you. And so we want to appreciate it greatly. We want to be willing in our appreciation to confess all known sin. Before God. And so when we go to this invitation in a moment, either where you're standing or you can come down to the front and kneel at the altar, but it is very important for you to understand there's a moment of confession that needs to take place before you partake of these elements. And then thirdly, it would be an unworthy manner if we were to look upon this as some ritual. If we just go through this as some formality. Because it's not. And before the Jews would celebrate a Passover meal, they would excruciatingly search and, and examine to make sure that they had the perfect spotless lamb for a sacrifice. And we're here this morning to celebrate that the Lamb of God became a sacrifice for us to take away the sins of the world. And so we can be so very grateful for that.